0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: So Scott, I have a question for you as a fellow parent of a small child. Please. Which is, do you think that definitionally it is possible to take a vacation with your toddler? Impossible. Or is it at best a trip? And it can be a good trip, but it's a trip. It's at best a trip. Having just done a
0: trip with my toddler myself that I came back so much more exhausted from than when I left, it is just
1: not a vacation anymore. D- dear, dear listener, you may recall that I was uh, not on RATSEC last week. You maybe you even enjoyed that. And the reason was because I was taking a trip with said toddler. And it was a good trip. And the toddler was great. And I will cherish those memories. And oh my God, am I exhausted. It's just a lot. My son, I took to the beach for the
0: first time. I mean, like, the he had been to the Gulf Coast of Florida beach before, which is like mellow and quiet. This is like, you know, the Outer Banks, North Carolina. They're big old waves. It's like for real. And his favorite activity was just bolting directly into the ocean <laughs> anytime I stopped watching him. Was that when you started to question all of your life choices? No, that's why I was like, staycations, I get now. I understand that. Like, I could be cleaning my garage right now, and that is would be so relaxing and a source of so much psychological comfort. I literally am like marking down a weekend to clean my garage in September, October when it's cool enough to be out there for a couple hours. I'm very excited.
2: I will say I do not have a toddler, but looking forward to cleaning for me has been one of the real markers of adulthood.
0: It is special when you can do it. When you have like a real house project, you know, I love love a house project.
2: Love to put up a shelf.
0: I have to build a new bar, which I'm very excited
2: about because oh, my bar cart
0: uh, got overstocked during the pandemic. Uh, and, and like, <laughs> So I have the pieces to build a, a new one that I'm like, you know, have an Ikea wooden cabinet that I'm heavily modding and adjusting. Um, but it's the sort of thing that takes more time than I tend to have. This fall is it. This is going to be the fall of Scott. It's going to be some serious DIYing, saws, hammers, drills. I'm, I'm very excited
1: about it. And, and how does your wife feel about that, Scott?
0: She doesn't know. She has no idea. <laughs> it's one of those things that's best sprung on someone at the last minute, in my experience.
2: Well, but does she listen to Rational Security?
0: She does now, actually. So I got about a week left. So baby, this is the news. I'm busy next weekend. But I'll see you in September. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Rational Security. I am one of your co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson, back with you again, and thrilled to be back in the virtual studio with my two other co-hosts, Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And Alan Rosenstein.
1: Hello,
2: hello.
0: Quinta, I am so sorry to not be there with you in person, but as I have a toddler-born contagion, uh, I opted not to share with our co-workers. I
1: hope you will forgive me.
2: You know, the, the office, it's quiet, it's peaceful. I'm doing great.
1: I'm just glad that we're all on equal virtual jungle studio footing. Yeah. yeah.
2: Although my office is noticeably unjungly. Um, I've been holding off on getting plants to bring back in case, you know, what if there, what if COVID roars back, which it now appears to, in fact, be doing. Um, so I don't know at what point I'm going to decide to take the plunge and get a succulent or something. Uh, but it'll be a real marker of a change when I do.
0: The good news is there are few enough people in our offices that really going back during this pandemic won't matter that much because no one's there anyway.
2: Team Lawfare is doing great. I'll have you know. I I would know (laughs) because
0: I haven't been in all week.
2: (laughs) I'm here three days a week, man.
0: Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, listeners, we are excited to have you back with us for what we are calling the Gone Till September edition. Because this is, of course, our last episode of the month of August, and then we are rounding the bend to our second anniversary episode this coming week, post-Labor Day. We're excited to have you there with us in this coming September and many weeks and months to follow. But until then, we have a few big stories in national security news we want to talk about, including the following. Topic one, pack your knives and go home. Vladimir Putin's top chef has been eliminated.
1: (laughs) Oh, my God. That
0: was pretty proud of one. <laughs> oh, Scott. A little dark.
1: That's okay. That's brutal.
0: Wagner, mercenary chief and Kremlin cater Yevgeny Prigozhin was killed in a plane crash this past week, along with a number of associates, and what the government has conceded just might have been a deliberate act. If this was Putin's revenge, what led him to take this step now, and what will it mean for his Wagner mercenary group and the stability of Putin's regime? Topic two, the down Mexico way. At the first Republican presidential primary this past week, there was surprising unity around one point, using the military to go after drug cartels in Mexico, whether Mexico cooperates or not. What should we make of the villainization of America's southern neighbor and how realistic are these sorts of proposals? And topic three, removing on up. Mark Meadows spent this past Monday trying to move his prosecution for crimes relating to 2020 election interference from Fulton County, Georgia to federal court so he can claim a form of immunity stemming from the supremacy clause, among other defenses. And some of his co-defendants are not far behind. What should we make of these arguments? Are they likely to succeed? For our first topic, Alan, let me hand it over to you.
1: Uh, so as Scott mentioned, on uh, August 23rd, uh, Wagner Group leader Yevgeny Prigozhin died, along with nine others. That's just, I think, a fact that's worth mentioning. Nine others when his private jet crashed in Russia. Uh, the crash took place exactly two months after Prigozhin's Wagner forces briefly marched on Moscow in an attempt to have Russia's military leadership dismissed in what many of them are calling the JKJK coup. Although the cause of the crash is still unclear, there's a lot of speculation that this was intentional. So, for example, the Wall Street Journal reported that officials within the U.S. government believe that the plane was taken down by a bomb or some other form of sabotage, though early reports of it being a service-to-air missile appear to be false. Uh, and even the Kremlin has publicly admitted that they're taking into account the possibility that Prigozhin's plane was intentionally sabotaged. uh, uh Quite amusing turn of events, given the overwhelming uh, assumption I think uh, on many of by many of us that it was the Kremlin that was behind this all along. Despite Putin's previous harsh words about Prigozhin, so for example, shortly after the revolt, he called Prigozhin a traitor and all sorts of other nasty words. Putin was oddly conciliatory in discussing Prigozhin after his death, describing him as having a quote complicated fate, and saying that Prigozhin quote made some serious mistakes in life, but he also achieved. Necessary results. So, the first question, um, and I kind of want both of you to answer with a sort of percentage. What percentage confidence do you have that Prigozhin was assassinated, either on Putin's direct orders or with his tacit acknowledgement? I want a number. Quinta, go first
2: 1,000.
1: 1,000. Okay.
2: Can I just say, (laughs) I was expecting this guy to get poisoned with polonium or a nerve agent or fall out of a window, right? Uh, No, they shot that thing out of the goddamn sky. Incredible energy. They
1: blew that thing out of the goddamn sky. Incredible
2: energy. And also we should say, it wasn't just Prigozhin, right? It was also uh, Dmitry Utkin, who was the actual Nazi. He had SS tattoos um, on his neck, uh, founder of the Wagner Group, which I think speaks to just incredible chutzpah by Prigozhin and Utkin's part, that both of them Got on the same plane, knowing that the Kremlin was not happy with either of them. Bravo, hats off!
0: And had been apparently doing this for a while now, despite warnings from you know the president of Belarus and a sort of other people saying, "Hey, man, maybe this is a bad idea. Maybe you just lay low, and not in Russia for a while." Uh, I tend to agree with Quinta. I'm fairly confident this person was assassinated. I'm not 100% sure it was necessarily Putin, uh, although I suspect it
1: probably happened with Putin's kind of like tacit acquiescence. Is this a meddlesome priest? Will someone rid me of this meddlesome priest situation?
2: I mean, that's how the Kremlin works, right?
1: Right, exactly.
0: I mean, there are these, it seems like without really knowing, because it's a bit of a black box, but it seems like there's lots of fiefdoms, lots of kind of relationships and understandings and spheres of power. But particularly like the guy who pre was kind of actually the biggest vocal and direct threat to wasn't necessarily Putin, who is General Shoigu with Minister of Defense, right, who uh, particularly when this, they said this was shot down by an anti-aircraft missile, then it made a lot of sense to me that it was Shoigu. turns out maybe that wasn't the case. Maybe this was a bomb, maybe something else. You know, there's reports of an exploding sound right before it happened. And I think there, there's even videos of it, although I haven't seen them. So, you know, clearly something happened, not 100 percent clear what, but it still strikes me that he's as likely a candidate as Putin is, maybe even more likely. But regardless, it seems clear somebody uh, was taking down Prigozhin, and not many other people would have the chutzpah balls to do that, I don't think, because Prigozhin did still have a lot of money, a lot of resources,
1: a lot of very violent people working for him. So l- let's assume that this was, in fact, intentional by Putin, which again seems very likely, uh, and the Kremlin's not trying all that hard to hide it. Does this solve the problems that Prigozhin's aborted revolt caused Putin? Right, in the sense that not only is Prigozhin gone, not only is the other Wagner leader gone, but he's gone in a very unsubtle way. Does this solve the the weakness that I think all of us viewed uh, as a result of you know just how far the Wagner forces managed to get to Moscow two months ago
2: i mean i I don't know, and it's actually occurring to me now that i with apologies to our listeners, I don't have a great sense of What is going to happen to Wagner now? Um, I mean, part of the strangeness of Prigozhin's position over the last couple months since Kugate was that the Kremlin kind of couldn't live with him and couldn't live without him, that he had become very powerful because the Russian military is not in good shape and they really needed Wagner forces to assist them with the war in Ukraine. I actually don't know whether or not Wagner is going to keep fighting on the battlefield and whether uh, to what extent the Kremlin will have greater control over it at this point. But I mean, I sort of tend to agree with the argument that this is, you know, as with the war in Ukraine, it's a it's is an outgrowth of the actions of one crazy guy, but speaks the sort of the way that it fell out speaks to a broader array of structural problems, um, in this case with, uh, with the Putin government, right? That- but,
1: but wait, who who is the crazy guy here?
2: Well, in this case, it was Prigozhin.
1: There are many crazy guys. It's just
2: a lot of different crazy guys. That's a general overview of all of world history. Um, so in this case, I mean, I think that The reason that Prigozhin was able to get so powerful was in part because Putin has built up this kind of governance by playing off competing power structures, right, orbiting around one another. He went into this war in Ukraine. It turned out he really needed help from Wagner. And in that respect, obviously getting rid of Prigozhin helps him out, but it doesn't seem to me that it's resolved the underlying problem, which is that he's embarked on a war that he fundamentally cannot win. That the Russian military doesn't have the capacity to win, and he has staked the continuance of his regime on victory in an unwinnable conflict, and so in that respect, things seem a lot shakier to me than they did even just a few months ago.
1: Just, just wait until we have President Ramaswamy, and then and then Putin will <laughs> it all up for us.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah I I
0: don't disagree with what Quintus said, but I do think there's, I think it's a, even more of a kind of double-edged sword for Putin and his regime than might be readily appreciated. There's an amazing piece Wall Street Journal ran that's called like the last days, the uh, last days of Wagner's Fregosan, um, that I highly recommend reading because it really documents what he's been up to. And, and essentially he and the Kremlin have spent the last few months, particularly the two months since the coup attempt, but arguably perhaps even a little bit longer, Competing for essentially Wagner's clients, um, trying to win over influence, particularly uh, with African clients that have been leaning on the Wagner Group, and it describes in some detail how Kremlin officials were swooping in, building relationships, and excluding Prigozhin from some of these meetings. Whereas Prigozhin himself is trying to get ahead of some of them, kind of competing with different elements of the Russian government for these contracts, uh, essentially trying to Balkanize, you know, take the Wagner model. And franchise it into different sort of entities, balkanizing the kind of private security contractor, state-run private security contractor entity industry in Russia. Uh, no doubt to try and cabin some of Prigozhin's influence because it showed itself to be dangerous to have let him, one person, even somebody who would perceive as being very loyal to Putin, have this much authority. Killing Prigozhin. You know, clearly sends the signal, hey guys, like don't mess with Putin or the actual regime. If you go too far, don't be fooled into thinking how big your center of gravity is. In the end, everybody's dispensable. This drives that point home. And and maybe it has that sort of like, you know, gangland turf war sort of deterrent effect among other people who might be considering doing something. Long lines of what Pergozin did, which isn't a lot of people, but there are other oligarchs that could do different versions of flipping on the Putin regime, similar to in the ways that, that Pergozin did it. But the flip side of that is that it makes Russia look, in my mind, like a lot more of a fickle partner for governments and regimes looking for partners, right? And this is reflected a little bit in the Wall Street Journal article talking about some of the reactions by uh, African officials being like, well, I don't know if I can engage with Pergozin because he's having these problems with the Russian government. And we had this long-standing relationship with Pergozin, so it's weird that now these Russian officials want to meet with us separately or competing with them in a weird way. Uh, it just underscores the idea that when you sign on with a group like Wagner or with one of the successor groups that seems likely to come down the pike you know you're dealing with a group of individuals that have a lot of internal infighting um that are willing to use violence against each other maybe against other people who cross them the wrong way it, it really is like entering into a deal with the mafia right and this is a very high-profile demonstration of that. So, in that sense, I, I kind of suspect, strategically from a from a you know international politics perspective, it, it weakens Russia's hand pretty substantially. Um, as does just having to realign and rejuggle the whole Wagner Group enterprise, which was a source of international influence for it. But as is so often the case, domestic politics, domestic demand seem to be driving foreign policy, or at least cabinet and and uh constraining it in this regard. And so I, I think that trade-off is one Putin's willing to make. I, but I don't think it actually, you know, serves the regime's long-term or the long-term interest in terms of its foreign policy.
2: Yeah. I mean, I feel like what would have served the regime's long-term interest in terms of its foreign policy would have been not invading Ukraine, right? Like to, to some extent, all of this is kind of a dominoes falling over from that initial idiotic decision.
1: The only the only thing I would add to to Scott's point, and just to add another complication, is I, I do think that Again, from, this is all from Putin's perspective, right? I do think that assassinating Prigozhin was, was inevitable and probably the right call in terms of his own security and reputation within the mafia state that is Russia. Um, however, it, it does, it does create a complication for him going on because now it's very clear that to anyone who would like to see him removed that they can't do half measures, right? They can't go and try to get You know, some minister of defense thrown out or this or that, like they have to go and they have to kill Putin, right? If, if, if they want to limit his authority, there's no halfway that they can limit him because they know that he will not forgive that. So they have to limit him all the way. And the way you limit someone's power all the way in an autocracy is you, is you kill them. Now, again, probably on net, the kind of violent retribution that Putin is showing he is able and willing to dispense is probably more important. Then this other consideration. Um, but you know, when you take Quintus point, which is that Russia cannot win this war and it will continue to be dragged down for years and years to come. And at some point, um, this will have real impacts on Putin's ability to buy off the people he needs to buy off to stay in power. You know, th- th- this, this just further ensures that Putin's end will be a violent one.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's a possibility still. But, you know, I, I, I think it might be a little overdetermined. Like, I don't think we know exactly we're going to get there. But I think you're right. It does show an incentive structure for people who might want to resist Putin. But it may be not only that they have to kill Putin, the alternative might be that they just have to go find a bigger another big dog to jump in with. The idea, Pro- Pergozin's problem is that Pergozin had nothing to lean on but Wagner Group, right? Like his own network that Putin was able to constrain and trip back on. But if you're in the position of like a major oligarch with major international business enterprises that aren't sanctioned by the United States and engaged in terrorism and torture and all sort of horrible things, although many of them do do horrible things, but not of the scale or type of a Wagner Group and don't face the same international opposition, then you begin to say like, well, maybe if I begin to waver a little bit or Putin thinks I'm you know, double crossing a little bit, I, I risk this sort of a strong reaction, unless maybe I can get in with people like the United States or European countries that can provide some modicum of protection and insulate me from some of those consequences. Now, we know that's why Putin has made a point of trying to assassinate former defectors and other people who have worked with the UK government, European governments, American, not less the American government, but primarily European governments with polonium and a lot of the other kind of assassination cases we've seen coming out of Russia the last few years. That's clearly trying to undermine that idea that there there is safety anywhere. But this sort of incident where it's so clear that being in Russia is a big threat puts you at the you know, at such a control of this other regime, it, it does say that if people are able to get outside of it, maybe they do start to follow the advice that Pergoz ignored and, and live outside of it and begin alliances and building networks is there. So long story short, I, I, I'm not sure it necessarily leads to Putin's violent death uh, because it's still that's a big hill to get over to get there in terms of who's going to have the opportunity. But it might weaken his grasp even further because it forces people to be in for a penny, in for a pound when they do decide it's worth resisting him and to find bigger allies, allies that um, can capitalize on that sort of defection more. But then again, that's that's all still very hypothetical. There's a lot of a lot of other variables that enter into these sorts of uh calculations that we'll just have to see play
1: out. So last question before we close out, and in a sense, the most important question, which is, what effect will any of this have on the war in Ukraine? Which I, I guess is another way of asking a question that Quinta began to answer earlier, which is, what effect will this have on the Wagner Group? And, you know, for, for my money, I suspect the Wagner Group will continue to be a quote-unquote private entity because it is useful for the Russian government to have such an entity. Uh, I suspect it will be handed off to one of Putin's oligarch lackeys, um, and therefore it will become essentially uh, uh, more integrated with the with the Kremlin, while maintaining its formal uh, non governmental status. Um, and in the end, it's not going to change much on the ground. But I'm curious for what you all think.
2: I don't know. I mean, I will say there's a really interesting article by Joshua Yaffa for uh, the New Yorker about Wagner this was published in August 7th so before Prigozhin's death where one of the things that he writes about is that Wagner went from sort of having very highly trained troops to having basically cannon fodder um and that what that means is is that you know they're able to do some things that the Russian military might not be able to do because they're willing to just like put people out there to be mowed down um and there's a fair amount you can do you know strategically or tactically if you're just willing to let your own people die in waves in order to overwhelm the enemy but on the other hand it means that they're they're not like it's not hugely a hugely skilled population of fighters and at this point uh the convicts that they were recruiting from russian prisons may be kind of wise to the game which i thought was interesting and may suggest that this was sort of a plan that had a uh, limited lifespan to begin with. I don't know how that interacts with the fact that both Prigozhin and Utkin are gone. Um, I will admit to not having a great sense of the Wagner organizational structure beyond that, although possibly nobody does. Um, but I agree. I mean, the extent to which it can be kind of scooped up um, and put under the control of the ministry of defense, which I think was one of the proposals on the table that got Prigozhin mad at Shogu in the first place might, you know, shape how things move forward.
0: Yeah, I I, I think I agree with that. I, I think the one thing we can say for this, it seemed like Wagner's moment in Ukraine had more or less passed. Maybe the, it was a resource that could have been reconstituted and used in other ways in the future. But the, the role it played in kind of um, trying to do that last Russian advance around Bakhmut is you know it, that was kind of its its heyday we saw Pergozin kind of consciously remove people the one thing that Pergozin, they do lose though is that Pergozin did seem effective at like building loyalty among these people right like he actually got them to ride to moscow with him right um and he he was very weirdly charismatic yeah and it, and it, and he actually that probably played into the fact that in Ukraine, he was able to get them to do some of these horrible things the Russians need them to do that proves strategically advantageous. It's not clear to me, even if they have other you know groups of convicts or other people being fed into some sort of process, that whoever takes that over is going to have that that gift, that charismatic pull, particularly given the more difficult circumstances. So there is a bit of a loss there, I suspect, for Putin, as there, as there always is when you lose somebody who's proven effective at something. But obviously, that's the calculus he made is that that's worth it.
2: Well, speaking of uh, ill-advised invasions, it's recently become a meme uh, in the Republican Party to propose invading Mexico. Um, Why would we do this? You ask. Great question. To somehow combat uh, the Mexican drug cartels. So this is an idea that's kind of been brewing for a while. There's a good piece by Zach Beecham and Vox that kind of tries to trace the intellectual history of the idea and points it back to uh, 2019 when President Trump announced that he would seek to designate uh, the cartels as foreign terrorist organizations. Um, But now it seems to have sort of hardened into this weird kind of orthodoxy among Republican legislators and presidential hopefuls. So during the presidential primary debate, which Trump did not attend, numerous candidates, um, including DeSantis and foreign policy expert Vivek Ramaswamy, (laughs) suggested that the U.S. should take some kind of military action against the cartels. DeSantis promised to send special forces into Mexico on day one. Uh, Ramaswamy uh, has said separately that uh, he thinks that if the cartels meet the test for qualifying as a domestic terrorist organization, then that also qualifies them uh, as a target for the use of authorized military force.
1: Wait, wait, do, do, who, domestic, who's domestic? Our domestic what or Mexico's domestic? Question.
2: <laughs> what a great question. So yeah, so this is a nice little just like blended up group of words that have meaning in a different structure, but not in that structure, Uh, which leads into my uh, first question for you, Scott, which is would this be legal under international law?
1: (laughs) Yes, please. Former state department, legal advisor, Scott Anderson, think hard about this. Really give us, give me a, this is a tough question.
2: Yeah. You're, you're, you're in the state department. It's the first day of the Ramaswamy administration. And they ask you, Scott, We'd like to invade Mexico. Is this legal? So the
0: traditional answer would be no, but I am <laughs> going to complicate it by by two things. Uh, two things. God um, damn you, Anderson. Th- so this this is it. But th- the answer is no. The answer is pretty clearly no. Um, you know, there isn't the parallel we're drawing here is to terrorism, right? And we do have this idea that non-state actors in a state can commit the equivalent of armed attacks. That's the thing that triggers the right to self-defense under international law across international borders. And the United States has maintained, a number of other states allied with the United States have maintained, although it's fairly controversial and not universally subscribed to that, when that happens, the state that is being attacked has a right to engage in self-defense in the other state where that non-state actor is based uh, under an unable or unwilling theory, right? So we apply that in the context of terrorism. Does anything Drug cartels do, could that be construed in an armed attack in the international law sense? Almost certainly not. Maybe if they actually like became terrorist groups or they're engaged in like violent organized crime, like you could kind of get there, at least because the United States has a like historically low threshold for what constitutes an armed attack in terms of scale. Uh, whereas a lot of other states see it as having a substantial scale that probably could never be met by that sort of standard. But like it's really stretching and that's not sort of thing that we're really talking about. We're talking about fentanyl and opiates and drug dealing. We're not talking about like a lot of violent organized crime at a scale that really threatens the nation in any meaningful way. There are cases, though, where states have occasionally made arguments like that, like the one that I'm most familiar with is that Turkey has repeatedly argued um, that migrant flows are a threat to its national security, has engaged in self-defense arguments and uh, military interventions based on self-defense arguments in Syria and Iraq on that premise. A couple other states have occasionally made similar arguments. They're a minority. And I think most people think this is a really problem. You can't just say any policy problem that crosses national borders is an armed attack and allows us to intervene, intervene militarily. But there is like, you know, there, there's going to be hooks for people to hang on to for this sort of argument. They're weak hooks. It's, it's not going to get anywhere. The point that stands out to me on this is that this like really isn't a new idea. There was a whole movie I made about this, guys. It's called Clear and Present Danger, and it is an American classic of Tom Clancy, you know, macho. I haven't seen it but want to. Is it a Harrison Ford? It's as a Harrison, Jack Ryan. It's a Harrison Ford as Thank Jack God. Ryan. Uh it is no, I mean Alec Baldwin was the best Jack Ryan and Hunt for an October. I'm sorry. Yeah. But it, but Harrison Ford is close second. You know, of the two Harrison Ford ones, I think it's the Patriot Games is the more serious and probably better one as film. Clear and Present Danger is more exciting and interesting to watch because Willem Dafoe plays a crazy Special Forces guy and Willem Dafoe being crazy is always great. But the key point being like this isn't a new idea. Like this is something people have been talking about since the 80s, right? And has kind of done to various points. And I'll say like the fundamental problem is is like, what do you think is really happening with with these drug groups that you can like target them in this way? Like the problem with criminal organizations is that they blend in with civilian populations and that it's hard to investigate these things. That if you're gonna start just like blowing people up, you're gonna kill a bunch of civilians because you don't know who's doing what. And a bunch of like criminal operations are mixed in with a bunch of totally normal things that just like people are doing about their everyday lives. They're not all hanging out on armed compounds like processing pounds of fentanyl that you can just target with. A, bit, a missile and blow out of the face of the off the planet, right? It, it, the same with with like the idea of interd- interdicting you know precursor chemicals uh, for fentanyl by blocking trade in Mexico. That, that's going to kill tons of Mexicans because they're going to make their basic living goods they rely on much more expensive. Because all of a sudden they're going to have to go through this crazy blockade they've set up. It's a completely infeasible policy set that doesn't address the problem. And more fundamentally, it's inc- it's really cruel. It's based on this idea that like the actual consequences for Mexico just don't matter. They're all real none of this stuff's gonna actually happen for that for that reason you may I there are elements of this that might happen frankly there are ways that military could be involved in drug operations with the cooperation in cooperation with Mexico that like might even make some sense and and they've done historically but nothing like what these people are talking about
2: what this reminds me of a little bit is if you go back and rewatch Breaking Bad, every time they go into Mexico, suddenly there's like a sepia tone filter yeah. over the screen and it's like, this is a different land. It's the land of drugs. They stole no. that from
0: Arrested Development, as I recall.
2: <laughs> no, look, I will defend Breaking Bad. I love Breaking Bad. That was a bad choice. And I feel like it's kind of a similar vibe here.
1: So so three three points. The first is I, I do want at some point come back to the question of who was the best Jack Ryan, because I actually think that both Chris Pine and John Krasinski are, are pretty decent Jack, Jack's Ryan. But you know, you could di, di, friends discuss on Twitter. So the second thing I want to say is I just want to go back to this, to this quote from, from Rambaswamy about domestic terrorism. Um, and, and Quinton, to put it in the chat. I'm just going to read it out loud. It's amazing. So this is from a uh, interview with Politico. Quote, if those cartels, meet the test for qualifying as a domestic terrorist organization for the purpose of freezing their assets. I think that qualifies them for the US president to view them as an eligible target for the use of authorized military force. <laughs> this, is, this is truly an amazing sentence.
0: Wait, Scott, what do you want? <laughs> so I just want to say, nothing, none of this is new again. What he's saying People have been saying for 20 years, he just said domestic instead of
1: foreign. Well,
2: well but I think, but, but that's but important. No,
1: but yeah, yeah, well, so-, no, so it's so, certainly important. So the, the, the point I'm trying to make here is that like, Ramaswamy, clearly a smart guy, like just doesn't know anything about anything. No, no. No, hey, no, I no, mean. no,
2: no. Allow me, allow me. Okay, this is what I think. This is the, what it sounds like when you are good at making people think that you're smart, but you don't actually know anything.
1: Well, I, I think you can be smart and not know anything. And I just want to point out a couple of things. So it's not just the domestic versus foreign terrorist organization issue, right? It's also the fact that <laughs> you, can, if the U.S. president wants to use authorized military force, the force must be authorized. That's the whole point. Like I think there's this weird idea here that you know, by becoming president, you can just bomb whoever you want, and it's authorized because it's authorized. But we have a whole mechanism for congress to authorize you to do things it's called the authorization for use of military force and you have to like point to one
0: i mean honestly actually most uses of force don't have an AOF. most of them are just on article 2 authority but yeah and it's not clear that they're authorized what are they authorized by that
2: is auditioning for his job in the Ramaswamy? <laughs> yeah, am i right am I <laughs> exactly
0: legal advisor look I, I this is wrong but this does like with the point I I think is I'm trying to get at here is that like these are a weird recycling of talking points. Like this, it's actually kind of and, and which is part of the reason they sound like they're so canned and ridiculous. And yeah, they're not a lot of substance behind them because this idea of a foreign terrorist organization FTO designation, which is a a legal regime that's been in place since the 90s, tons of people think all the time. Frankly, from both parties, but but admittedly from from people who tend to be a little more inclined to try and use use of force solutions to address terrorism, there's long this confusion saying that, oh, if you designate someone an FTO, that means you can target them uh, with military force. It, it, that's not what the regime does. The regime does require determination that the Pearson is a threat to the United States. Being a threat to the United States does not mean you can just all... Ob- you could just start being shot at by U.S. soldiers anytime. Um, there are lots of threats to the United States that you know we don't address militarily for good reason, and that we wouldn't be legally allowed to domestically or internationally. But the key point is that like this is this is a a trope that comes back, and the appeal of the trope, I'll say, like I think, is that the fentanyl epidemic, the opioid epidemic, are real problems, but they're real problems that the approachable solutions aren't things that are. Good to talk about for Republican nominees, or easy to talk about because it's things like a lot of public services and a lot of benefits, or a lot of investigations and prosecuting people, like in the United States, in areas where there's a lot of opioid issues and fentanyl issues. Like people are on board with like we're dealer prosecuting dealers, but what about like users? And what about providing like avenues for care as opposed to imprisonment? Like it gets into uh, needing some sort of public health safety net, and and that's not something that. You know, Republican candidates for president want to talk about as a policy solution. It's much easier to say, "Oh, this is an externalized problem. Let's blame this on somebody else." That's what we've seen happen around the drug conversation, frankly, continually um, over the last three or four decades.
1: Okay, so, so Scott, I, I will grant you, we we don't have to pick on Vivek this whole conversation. We, I actually want to defend Vivek on one more point, but I'll save it. <laughs> oh my god! Um, but I, I look, I will, I will take your invitation to expand this out um because i do think you are right that what's more important here is is the the trope like the meme like nature of this among the republican party and and the point i just want to make here is like <laughs> the maga movement does not have a lot of silver linings <laughs> um as quinto would say you don't have to hand it to him but one thing that i do think has been salutary or had the potential to maybe be salutary was the republican party coming to terms with the fact that the war in Iraq in particular, was just an absolute disaster. It was just a bad idea from the beginning. It ended very poorly. And there has to be some sort of reckoning here. And what I find to be surprising is that despite the magnification of the Republican Party, despite the increased isolationism, you know, see, for example, this weird Ode to Nixon that Vivek wrote recently about how Nixon was a genius and ended the war in Vietnam, which is an interesting interpretation of history. Despite all of that, he didn't say anything about Cambodia. Okay. He did not say that he did not say anything about Cambodia. And look, um, he
2: he continued the war in Vietnam under LBJ so that he could end it.
1: Exactly, exactly. Um, it's almost like he had to destroy the village to save it. Anyway, the, the the point I'm trying to make is that this would be a like war of Iraq magnitude disaster times 10 because iraq was at least in the middle east mexico is right here um like what do you what do these people think would happen if the united states waged a war in mexico like what do you think would happen to the migrant refugee crisis i mean look even if you are crudely brutally realpolitik and all you care about is america's interest and let's say you're a republican and you only care about red state interest so you only care about texas right let's say um in terms of the 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 border crisis none of this will help And and that's what I find just so well, that's one of the things that I find so crazy making about this.
2: I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me
0: in a given month. Over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/people today.
2: One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes.
1: Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt.
2: Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at UH1.com. That's UH1.com. So what I would say is that I think that if we categorized Iraq and Afghanistan as like foreign wars or adventurism abroad or something like that, I think that Mexico exists in kind of a different space in like the mega mind so to speak right i don't think it exists as somewhere over there where there is you know like across the sea right like america goes not abroad in search of monsters to destroy i think it's more a kind of like psychic weight of the sort of demonic presence at your doorstep that you have to keep out there's an incredible quote and i i can't remember i think it was the cbp commissioner under trump um who said uh every town is a border town at one point under the trump administration and i feel like that really just encapsulates it like the the border is not a physical space the border is kind of a psychic anxiety over the concept of being invaded, where invasion is a constant status that could happen to you at any time by those other people. And so the idea of migrants crossing the border, the idea of asylees crossing the border, the idea of fentanyl crossing the border, it all exists in that kind of space. And this is a sort of posturing about keeping it out, which is, in fact, very, like, totally central to the idea that Trump was promoting in the first place. And so in that sense, I think it's sort of distinct from the kind of foreign policy adventurism that Trump was arguing against, even though I agree, it, it would also be a dumb war. And I should say, even John Bolton says that this would be a bad idea. Even John Bolton. Yeah,
1: I, I think this is a really good point, Quinta. And I you know, I think that maybe another way of, of, of- describing or sort of formulating what you were saying is that like, this is a a deeply authoritarian foreign policy impulse in a way that the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, they were not authoritarian wars. Now, again, this is not to defend them. That's not the point here. The point is just make an analytical observation that a classic thing that authoritarians do is they try to find the scary other and then they demonize them. Now, I will say it is in fact in a certain sense, true that every town is a border town, right? And there are plenty of blue jurisdictions that have, you know, dealt with, you know, migrants and asylees in the last few years have come around to this fact, right? I think Eric Adams of New York City would agree that New York City is also a border town. But but the point the point is that there's a version of that concern which sort of any government, any society will deal with and is compatible with liberal democratic institutions. And there's a version of that concern. That is not. And the version of that concern that is not is the one that you are seeing on the MAGA stage. I want to defend Vivek Ramaswamy on one more thing. <laughs> wow. <they're> just the, <laughs> the fan club. Can, some, can, can, we get a, can we get a t-shirt or, or a, 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 pa- a patch? I'm with Vivek. Man, I'm Vivek with Man, Vivek 2024
0: here. Not quite. Not quite. Uh, but I do, I do want to say this just because we hit him pretty hard for, for being dumb and not knowing what he's talking about, which in that quote. Absolutely true. He not does point. not know what he's talking not about. He's talking about. I, I, I live in fear of the day that when, when we finally put transcripts to rational security episodes up in the quotes, <laughs> people will find things I've said. But yes, fair point. Um, yeah, we're not running for president. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, the one thing I will, I will say Vivek has done that I think is very interesting and is worth reading, although I'm going to say up front, I don't think it's persuasive, but I don't think it's good, but I think it's an interesting thing that he's done, is that he actually is, has articulated in part because he's come under such criticism for his very ill-considered Taiwan comments that he clearly walks back in this document and some other foreign policy related stuff, but like Ukraine that he kind of doubles down on in this document, he's actually put forward like a foreign policy statement. These are the sorts of things you don't usually see for a little while in these sorts of campaigns. Like at a certain point, we're going to start getting the New York Times, Charlie Savage did this, other people have done this, putting out questionnaires to the different political campaigns uh, from both parties. In this case, really, only the Republicans matter um, because we know how Biden feels about this stuff, asking for positions on different national security issues. And they're going to have to articulate and wrestle with these things and try and fit it into a big image and big kind of grand strategy. And like certain candidates are good at this. A lot of candidates aren't because uh, they don't really think about foreign policy, except as kind of like an instinctual secondhand politically salient points, not in terms of actual policy points. Uh, and Vivek has put together this kind of narrative they published in the American Conservative that actually pulls together like a strategic context for a very trumpy foreign policy in a way that Trump never did again i don't find it persuasive i don't think it's holds together particularly well i think a lot of it are like dramatic changes in a way that would harm the united states in ways that you know a a classic kind of disruptor mentality doesn't appreciate and therefore shouldn't be taken that seriously cuz being in government, people will take it more seriously. Same reason Trump did not actually change as nearly as much as he promised to when he was running for office. But it's interesting the way he knits it together. And I think it's an interesting read because it gives you a sense of maybe where this particular strain of GOP foreign policy is headed, which is a much more isolationist one, but selectively. Like There's elements where they're willing to be interventionists, including in the Western Hemisphere and particularly including Mexico. And then what's interesting about Vivek is that the one thing he really departs from Trump on is that he's a free trader. Like, he really doubles down on free trade, at least in a regional perspective here, in a way that uh, Trump was much cooler on or remains much cooler on. So that's an interesting leverage point uh, you could see, you know, trying to distinguish that in which Vivek is actually kind of like a weird outlier from the GOP platform. None of whom want to talk about free trade, as far as I can tell, uh, and that Trump is like actively opposed to. Um, so it's an interesting document. And at least
1: like I, I will say we can get his sense of his views on this stuff a lot more easily than some of the other candidates. So I, 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 will grant that it is an interesting document. And, and you're right, Scott. Obviously, you know, you jokes aside, you're obviously not like defending Vivek substantively here. No. People should, in fact, read this document. I could not be further away from his actual <laughs> substance beliefs on any of this stuff. You, you, you really could not. Um, people really should read this document. It's short. It's easier to read. It, it is interesting, right? Because it does, in fact, offer a kind of intellectual defense for this, but it is wild just how out there it is. I mean, I, I just want to underscore totally the part that I like the paragraph I had to read three times because I really wanted to make sure I was not mischaracterizing this. Basically, the idea is that, um, Vivek's big plan for peace is that he will just give whatever part of Ukraine Putin is currently holding. If Putin quote ends his security alliance with China, like that's his big theory. And yeah, it's, it's, it's. It's wild. Look,
2: no one's tried it before. No one's
1: tried <laughs> Yeah, move fast and break things like the world.
0: Exactly. That is actually, that is the best way to capture exactly what this proposal is, um, which is just deny all conventional wisdom, assume the opposite is better, and, you know, live with the consequences, which in this case will be horrible for everybody. But it's an interesting read and interesting that uh, he's put it together into sort of package here.
1: Well, I, I, like, I look forward to your defense when you are the uh, legal advisor in the... Obviously.
0: Scott. Obviously. I look forward to it. <laughs> well, from removing drugs from our streets to removing cases to federal court. Let us talk a little bit about <laughs> removal and Mark Meadows. This past week, we saw a really interesting hearing take place in federal court in the Northern District of Georgia, if I recall correctly, in which we saw Mark Meadows testify in support of his effort to remove the his prosecution in Fulton County, Georgia for various crimes related to 2020 election interference to federal court on a variety of grounds, but in part so that he can pursue uh, an array of federal defenses, or at least that he intends to pursue an array of federal defenses there, some of which are related to his basis for removal. In this case, uh, and he's not alone. We know a number of other defendants are likely uh, and have already begun to make motions for removal, including some former electors, which is interesting because I'm not sure we would naturally assume that they would have a strong claim to having a federal office uh, sort of role or federal authority. Certainly not the so, as strong a claim as the former chief of staff of the president like Mark Meadows does. Meanwhile, there are other candidates who probably would not qualify for removal but may get pulled along um, depending on whether the government decides to try and sever their cases or not or other or they choose to try and sever their cases or not uh, and it's leading to this balkanization of these 19 defendants in the Fulton County case where some it looks like are going to be caught up in federal proceedings some likely won't be we have Ken Cheesebro which in a separate motion is trying to expedite his trial uh, in a way that already former president Trump has said I don't want to do this and would rather much delay my trial so it we're about to see not not one Fulton County prosecution potentially, but lots of them. But a lot of it hinges on this question of removal. Alan, I know you've been digging into this. Tell us a little bit about how removal works and how Mark Meadows' case fits into the doctrine as we understand it.
1: Sure. So the concept behind removal is that certain cases that are brought in state courts should be adjudicated in federal court. Uh, And there are lots of reasons why that may be. So most of this is usually in the civil context, but in the criminal context, there's a particular statute, um, the you know, subsection of which uh, I forget, um, but it is the Federal Officer Removal Statute. Uh, it's quite an old statute. I mean, it has existed in one form or another since actually the early 19th century, even before the Civil War, uh, though it came into prominence sort of during that time period and afterwards, that provides that a defendant who is prosecuted in state court um, can remove to federal court, even if the you know charges are purely state charges, if that defendant was a federal officer at the time that they committed the alleged crime, and that they have a federal defense. Uh, and the idea here is that these are federal issues and they should be adjudicated in the federal courts um, because we might not trust state courts to give a sort of fair shake to the federal interest at stake. Now, and, and so Meadows is making this argument. A bunch of other potential January 6th defendants are making this argument. Donald Trump may at some point almost certainly will make this argument. And so what is required for removal under this statute? So three things. Um, and I, I will, you know, we've we'll been doing a lot of coverage on this for, for lawfare. There's a, a great piece that just came out by our intrepid Fulton County correspondent, Anna Bauer, who covered the Meadows removal hearing, uh, this week. There's a, another piece by, uh, uh, UT Austin law professor Lee Kowarski on the removal issue. We'll, we'll continue covering this. But there's a the simple version is that in order for Mark Meadows to remove to federal court, he has to establish three things. The first was that he was a federal officer at the time. The alleged events took place. This is easy to establish. He was the chief of staff. Uh, Second, that the actions he was taking were taken pursuant to his federal authority or to his federal duties as chief of staff. Uh, And then the third is that he has a federal defense, a colorable federal defense. And so the real action here is on two and three. And really, I mean, you can parse this in different ways. I find it simplest to just sort of try to cut through all of this. Um, Ultimately, all of this hinges kind of on one fundamental question, which is, are the actions that the chief of staff took, Mark Meadows took, are they close enough to within the sorts of things that the federal, uh, that the um, uh, uh, chief of staff to the president is supposed to do, um, that any criminal prosecution of that would potentially run afoul of the supremacy clause, right? The idea that federal law, constitutional law, statutory law is supreme over state law. And Uh, This is what the evidentiary hearing that took place this week is about. Now, there's been a lot of debate about this in sort of the the popular press and with law professors. Um, And the consensus appears to be that uh, these are bad arguments because, you know, the president and therefore the president's chief of staff does not have any role in state elections And that you know certainly trying to overthrow an election is not a legitimate federal duty, and therefore there should not. There's there's no basis for removal. So I I actually tend to disagree. In my view, these cases are not just Meadows, but I think also even Trump's. I'm going to get a lot of flack for saying so. I think there's actually pretty solid cases for removal at this stage, because a couple of things. You know, first the president, and I think therefore by by extension the president's inner advisors, Maintain a truly unique role in our constitutional system, right? You know, we select the president to have a lot of power and to have very general power, right? Article two really doesn't say all that much of what the president is supposed to do. And where it does, it often speaks, not always, but often speaks in very broad generalities, most notably that the president shall take care that the laws be faithfully executed. And the way I read that, and the way I think also a lot of progressives who like broad presidential authority when it's in their interest read that is that you know, as a general matter, the president has at the very least a responsibility to look into serious violations of federal law. And while, of course, a state election is a state election, it has enormous implications for federal law, um, not just, you know, the specific federal election laws, but also because the state elections feed into a federal process, the uh, counting of the electoral college votes. And while it is true that the Constitution's description of the counting of electoral college votes does not explicitly include a role for the president, I don't think that precludes the idea that the president has a general obligation or ability to look into potential violations of that. That Now, you may respond, and the proper response would be, but there was no violation. The election was not stolen, which, of course, it was not stolen. We all understand this, right? We're all rational people who read the news and read the January 6th committee report and uh, all sorts of stuff like that. However, in the context of a legal proceeding, you have to establish all of those things. You can't just you know introduce well, the New York Times has conclusively shown that none of this was true, and therefore this was completely outside any plausible conception of the president's authorities. This is especially true because the posture of a removal motion is that there only has to be a colorable claim um, that the individuals are acting in their sort of federal authority, and not just that because this you know, in the context of the president, and the president's advisors, this implicates sort of really tricky Article 2 questions. A court could easily say, look, I'm going to be extra sort of small c conservative about um, protecting, again, at this early stage of the litigation, uh, the president's authorities. And so you know, even if there's a chance that there's some argument the president could make, and that would have to be ultimately adjudicated on the facts or through sort of a complicated process, I'm going to allow for removal, so in in my view, at least these cases make a lot of sense for removal at this stage. Um, now, what happens after that is kind of less clear. So, you know, it, it I'm I'm not positive, and I'll just I just I just don't know the law on this as well as I'd, I'd like to. I'm trying to figure this out. It's not entirely clear to me what happens after removal throughout the pendency of the trial. So, you know, one possibility is once it's removed, it's just going to be a state case, but it's fully adjudicated in federal court with a federal jury. Another possibility, which the more I think about it seems the more likely, is that it's a federal case for as long as there is a live federal issue, which is to say for as long as the judge believes that there is a legally available defense on the part of Meadows or Trump or whoever, that the supremacy clause or Article 2 or like whatever part of the Constitution you want to um, invoke does potentially shield Trump for from prosecution. As the trial continues, as there's more evidence presented, you know, at some point, presumably, the defense will make a motion to dismiss for because of the federal defense, or alternatively, the prosecution will make a motion to remand to the state court saying, look, judge, we've been here for a month, we've heard all this evidence, it's very clear that, you know, this was much more like shooting someone on Fifth Avenue, than this was, you know, taking a Ultimately illegal, but, uh, you know, colorably defensible action purport, you know, uh, under the president's uh, jurisdiction, um please remand this to the state to, to the to the state court. And what I would expect as someone, again, who is reading the news and, you know, reads the January 6th committee report and thinks that's all credible is that that's what will end up happening. Right. You remove to federal or what should happen is you remove to federal court the trial continues as a federal trial more and more evidence is introduced both factually and legal arguments are made as to the potential federal defense at some point it becomes clear that trump you know knew that he was uh you know knew that he had lost the election knew that there were no good arguments therefore you know and 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 that holding him accountable would not cause any sort of constitutional issue at which point the judge says okay back to state court so that that's what i think should happen but curious curious what you all think
2: yeah i mean my sense is that There's this kind of, like, we will fight on the beaches, we will fight on the hills, we will never surrender vibe to some of the discourse around Trump, where, like, everything that he does, every argument that he makes in these cases is obviously ridiculous and repulsive to the rule of law and must be opposed. And, like, a lot of those, a lot of his arguments are, don't get me wrong, this doesn't strike me as one of them. Like, I don't know what the right answer is. I. I, I think nobody really does because this isn't frankly a situation that has ever arisen before. And it's also, I think important to note that like, it's not super clear to me that there's a huge amount riding on this. Alan, I know that you and Anna have been working on this, but there's this idea that if it's removed, that the jury will be more conservative and white, but like maybe, but that's not, it's not super clear. It seems to me more like the idea is just to delay by dragging things out, moving it from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. On the other point, Fulton County is not a model of uh, speed when it comes to bringing these cases to trial. And it's entirely possible that a federal judge might be more interested in kind of moving things along than a Fulton County state court judge would be. So I kind of just come out at the end of this thinking like, interesting question, haven't really dealt with this in this way before. We'll see what the judge decides. And like, that's kind of it. I, the the sort of, you know, claws out, you know, no surrender mentality that a lot of like hashtag resistance posters and lawyers are going into this is pretty bizarre to me, frankly.
0: Yeah, I don't disagree with that. Uh, but and I, I would say also, you know, on this on the Meadows point, really the point of contention should be the defense itself right like that's that is what people should object to with good reason i think a lot of the arguments people are bringing out against removal actually are actually objections to the assertion of the underlying defense right that they ignore the co- kind of colorable standard at this stage and are beginning to just attack the actual defense itself by saying it's not even colorable it, colorable is a, a low bar right um so it's it's certainly there's like a plausible argument to he, be had here and like That is the reason the statute is structured this way. You know, The whole point of this is so that if a federal official, which Mark Meadows indisputably is or was, which former President Trump indisputably was at the time a lot of this conduct was alleged, well, for a lot of it, the whole idea is that if they have any thread of an argument, we want to give them a chance to have this heard in federal court if they think that's a more fair place to hear it. And that's what they're doing. And that's I, not necessarily inappropriate in this case. The actual underlying defenses raises a lot of questions about the scope of their duty. What sort of acts are these? Do, how do they fit into, you know the idea of, the president's role versus some political role. And that's gonna be really interesting to see how that plays out. It gets to this bigger theme we have seen the executive branch really wrestle with throughout the whole Biden administration. That's something I desperately want to write an article on that I just haven't had time to really tackle. Where the Biden administration has, since the kind of the NARA litigation around January 6th productions, really kind of been trying to drill down on where the line is for the presidency between the president's duties and the political role, because that bore on the application of executive privilege. It bore on, um, you know, the assertion of different types of indemnification and in various civil claims against former President Trump. It's born in a bunch of different places. And you've seen all these data points that boil down to the executive branch saying, no, there actually is a line here that we're willing to assert in a way that the executive branch frankly i don't think really was that excited about asserting before the present moment. it's an evolution in executive branch thinking that i think is really notable and interesting and that that's i suspect might come out here. now the executive branch isn't involved in these proceedings but i kind of think maybe the federal district court might
1: ask for an amicus? Well, well not not just that. i mean they're not involved until this goes to the supreme court. like let's be very clear here. i mean these are the weightiest questions of executive power in a generation. So at some point, this listener general will have an opinion about this.
0: I, I agree. I mean, at some point they absolutely will. I am curious. So this, it's actually interesting. There are like a lot of constraints on the appeal of remands for uh, for removal um, that have been the subject of Supreme Court litigation, even in the last couple of years. I was just kind of like poking at this a little bit in preparation for the session. I don't know where this fits into that, and I'm not asserting that this falls under it. But Congress has actually like consciously restricted the ability to appeal certain remand decisions. Um, so there there might this might get cut off before it gets to that level. I'd be a little surprised, but then it could come through the state court you know, and and also get to Supreme Court if they assert a federal defense there, fail, and then gets appealed to Supreme Court eventually there. Um, but yeah, at some point, I agree, the government's going to weigh in. I think it'll be interesting to see if they weigh in, even at this stage, uh, or if the court actually asked them to, which which federal district court judges like appellate courts can ask, you know, solicit the views of the, call for the views of the federal government. I, I don't know if they would in this case necessarily, but they certainly could.
2: Guys, is this what it's like to take Fed courts? Oh,
1: it's so much worse. It's just different <laughs> for weeks and weeks and weeks. <laughs> I love I love Fed courts. For the record, Fed courts is great. <laughs> wow, well, that tell. explains that explains a lot, Scott. Scott, it really does. this is where Scott's love of standing comes from. I, I, I just I that to just go go back to the to the point that Quinta made because I think it's so important, which is we are at the beginning of a very very long process. <laughs> uh, so many cases, so many defendants, so many legal issues, so many appeals, so much this, so much that. And you have to keep your powder dry. Like you just, you cannot lose your mind about every single thing. It's it bad for your blood pressure, but it's also just bad for the credibility of the, you know, legal commentariat, which we are all part of. And I am old fashioned enough to think that, you know, you actually do gain by conceding when the person you think is the worst um, has a good point, or at least a colorable point. And, you know, without naming names, I, I'm just concerned that this is a preview of, again, the sort of full court press, clause out, just everything has to be just destroyed. And, you know, like, it, it's just, it bums me out. Because that's just going to be a bad way of, of living the next, you know, like, it's, 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 it's hard enough to sort of deal with all the nonsense that's going to come out of Trump and his allies without also having to say, you know, turn around and say, but like, you people also are being a little crazy. Everyone just calm down. Like, it's it's just, we just, please stop. Everyone, please stop with us.
0: Well, on that point, we have, are out of time for this surprisingly tight episode of Rational Security. I'm very proud of us. Um, because we were under some outside time constraints. But this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to ponder over in the week to come until we were back in your ear holes. Alan, what do you have for us this week?
1: Well, the first thing I have is please stop saying ear holes, for the love of God. (laughs) I
0: will will never. I like to sneak it in there occasionally still. my my My
1: eye holes twitch. Uh, when, when you say <laughs> ear holes. So my object lesson is the book Trust by, uh, Hernan Diaz. Um, I wish I could say that this is a really obscure book that no one's heard of. And then I'm pulling it out. Uh, it won the Pulitzer last year. So I'm, I'm partly a trendsetter here, but it is, it is a fabulous book. And the, the one of, you know, the, so kind of the very, very, very short version of it, but I can't say much without ruining it is it is about the life of a very rich couple, a kind of a, an industrialist and his wife in the 1920s, uh, sort of right before and sort of through the crash. And, and that's sort of all I can say about it, because it is a kind of literary puzzle box. And I hate this kind of fiction. Like, I cannot stand formally inventive fiction. Like, I just want a story with characters. Like, I get annoyed when authors don't use quotation marks because they're trying to be edgy. Like, I cannot stand formally inventive literature. I don't understand, and I will fight anyone in this, what? Why do people like Ulysses? Like, why is it worth reading exactly? Don't get me started on Finnegan's Wake. And I say that because this is the truly, truly rare book that is both a formally incredibly inventive and clever literary puzzle box and is an absolute joy to read. Like, you, re- I read it in two days. My wife read it and immediately read it in two days. You cannot put it down. And I just never read a book like that. Did that one that's just so, such a kind of beautiful piece of fiction and is so incredibly clever. So, highly recommended. Uh, trust by Hernan Diaz uh, and everyone, all you um, James Joyce stands. Um, please be nice to me. I love Dubliners. I, I you know, I, I think that the last the, the oh, last two sentences Dubliners. of the dead is still the greatest, you know, closer of the English language. But yeah, I just. Yeah, you and everyone know. else. Yeah, you know what? He just, he lost me at Ulysses. <laughs> Take that, Joyce. Yeah, yeah, exa- exactly, exactly, exactly. I've just single-handedly destroyed the reputation of James Joyce. Ruin yeah. my Bloomsday. <laughs>
2: <laughs> i
1: can get mine Bloomsday. Quinto, what do you have for us this week?
2: Well, speaking of formal inventiveness, um, this is also not really, uh, I'm not dragging out anything that is particularly obscure, but the uh, wonderful HBO show How To with John Wilson is wrapping up its third season. I think the last episode comes out this Friday. So if listeners are not familiar, this is a show where it's a documentarian who, as far as I can tell, just films everything in his life and strings together those clips with very sort of sweet and funny and unexpected narration over the top about his life in New York. And each episode is fashioned as how to... Do something. Um, So the the first episode of this season was uh, how to find a public restroom. The most recent episode, which I will not spoil, goes in some really interesting directions and does some interesting stuff with like, what is the nature of truth? What is the meaning of documentary? So highly, highly recommended. I will be very sad when it's over, but I'm very happy that we got a full another season.
0: Oh, I have wanted to watch this for a while. I'm so glad you reminded me it existed. It's so uh, good. It's so uh, good. it's I'm very. Truly I've like heard about else. this and I'm so curious. Nathan Fielder, I think, is involved with like a production. Yeah, level I think of he's it, the right? executive producer. Yeah, that's really interesting. Who I think does really interesting things with like weird genres like this. Uh, that's great. Um, Well, I also am dipping into a familiar well with my recommendation. Uh, I also appeal to prize winner, but from like three or four decades ago. So it's not that interesting. Um, But I have spent the week inserting an ungodly number of footnotes into a long article I'm writing uh, that has a strong historical component. I'm almost done with it. I'm hoping to finish today. Editors. I swear it's, it's coming to you. <laughs> Don't worry soon. Um, but because of that, I've been digging into a lot of history books uh, that I've had on my bookshelf, and one of them has just kept sucking me in in amazing ways. And this is Stanley Carnow's Vietnam A History that won the Pulitzer Prize, I think in the 80s, if I recall correctly. Karnow uh, was a, if I recall correctly, a uh, field correspondent, was in Vietnam, was a firsthand witness of a lot of stuff, has put together this like epic Epic, epically scoped, epically written um, book that I'm looking at the number of pages here. It's at least 800 pages, 700 pages, I should say, of history that reads so easily despite being incredibly in-depth and does an amazing job combining and showing the interplay between internal government decision-making including legal decision making which is the part that I'm using for this piece and events on the ground and domestic politics and international politics it's absolutely phenomenal and just one of the best nonfiction books like trying to cover such a complex complex set of choices and events that I've read um, so I want to sit down once I get done with this sit down and actually read it cover to cover which I have not done I've just been reading the chapters relevant for what I'm doing of course uh, as all academics do nobody's read all these books and all these footnotes um but I, I can't recommend enough so if you are curious at all um, about, uh, you know, dipping back into the history of Vietnam, a conflict that I know less about probably than a lot of other conflicts, which I feel like is true of a lot of people of my generation, but it's something we all, it's worth all of us voting up on. I can't recommend it enough. And with that, we are at the end of this week's episode. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare, so be sure to visit lawfaremedia.org for our show page, for links for past episodes, for our written work of the written work of other Lawfare contributors, and for information on Lawfare's other phenomenal podcast series. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at RTL Security or X if you prefer whatever name is your inclination. And be sure to leave a rating review wherever you might be listening. Also, sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare at Patreon.com/slash Lawfare for an ad free version of this podcast and other special benefits. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Kara Schillen of Goat Rody and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. And we are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Patcha Howell on behalf of my co host Alan and Quinta. I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week.